Uh, so we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about uh, unity um, in the church. As we strive to become a church that's more like Jesus, a Jesus-shaped community, uh, one of the things that we know that we're called to is to be together in unity. Last week, Katie uh, Ranham talked to us about what it looks like to, to kind of heal from uh, offense in the middle of unity. When, we're, when we feel slighted, when we feel um, ignored, betrayed, slapped in the face a little bit, how do we deal with that? And she talked to us out of the end of Romans 14 about that. We want to continue in Romans 14 today and continue to talk about unity. Um, we began this um, little mini three-week series um, two weeks ago talking about the things that unite us and really the one thing that unites us, the, the belief in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we ended that sermon two weeks ago with a quote from John Wesley. I want to come back to that quote uh, real quick because I didn't read you the full quote. I left off the last line, and the last line's important for today. So here's what we read two weeks ago. This is from Wesley in 1765. He uh, writes, or actually preaches, this is part of a sermon he delivered. He said, men may differ from us in their opinions as well as their expressions, and nevertheless be partakers with us of the same precious faith. It is possible they may not have uh, a distinct apprehension of the very blessing which they enjoy. Their ideas may not be so clear, and yet their experience may be as sound as ours. But still, though their opinions as well as expressions may be confused and inaccurate, I love that, everybody else is confused and inaccurate, uh, their hearts may cleave to God through the son of his love and be truly interested in his righteousness. And so uh, Wesley says, we may still find unity even though we differ and it happens through uh, God's son and God's son's righteousness. And then the next line of his sermon says this, let us then make all that allowance to others, which were we in their place, we would desire for ourselves. There are things that we build on there are things that we share in common, things that we have unity on, but there are other things that we must make allowance for. There are other things that we, we must be able to say, you know what, we differ on this, and that's okay. And so as we continue to talk about unity today, um, we want to talk about what it looks like to differ from each other. How do we hold on to unity in the midst of differing opinions or disagreement. Uh, what does that look like? And so in order to do that, we want to go to Romans uh, chapter 14 again. We're going to begin at the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to warn you, um, on paper, the sermon is a little long, so we'll see how fast I can talk. Um, I don't know, I've got my timer going, so we'll see if I can pay attention to it. Uh, but Romans 14, again, is where we find ourselves at. When we begin in the first verse, we're going to read the first 12 verses of Romans 14. Paul writes to the Roman church, a church, by the way, that he's never visited in person, um, but a church where he has many, many friends who are already there. The church in Rome, he writes this, beginning of, of chapter 14, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, well, the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain. 
and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on slaves of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will, uh, they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it for the Lord, and those who eat, eat for the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain for the Lord and give thanks to God. For we do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. There's that that thing we build unity on, the death and resurrection of Christ. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will be held accountable. Uh, There's some stuff in these 12 verses. There are some... Um, there are some things that we need to know, some, some um, really good, I think, kind of general rules for us or general guidelines for us about, about how to live in a, a community that has diversity of thought and diversity of opinion and still maintain unity. But before we get to that, we need to deal with some stuff in the text itself uh, that is a little confusing perhaps at face value. We need to deal with the issue of the weak and the strong because that language is not language that we use a whole lot and it's not language we find in the Bible a whole lot. And so I want to make sure that we understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about the weak and the strong. First thing that that we need to know is that Paul is using hyperbole. When Paul says that one group, the strong, uh, is willing to eat anything, He literally says that they do eat everything. There's nothing these people don't eat. They'll eat the table, all right? Uh, He is using hyperbole. He says, you put anything in front of them, and they're going to gobble it up. Likewise, in the weak camp, he says, they eat only vegetables. There's a great word in Greek for vegetarian, and this isn't it. Um, The word that he uses, they eat garden herbs, They're grazing. They eat lettuce only, all right? Nothing else. And so Paul is going to extremes when he talks about this. He's being tongue-in-cheek a little bit. And I think that those who are reading this letter would kind of chuckle at what Paul is doing here. It's like, oh, yeah, that, oh, that Paul. Uh, And and they would very easily, kind of no matter where you fell on the spectrum, you'd be able to place yourself in this situation. You would, you would find that you are someone that Paul is speaking to, no matter what you eat or what you choose to do. And so Paul is using kind of hyperbole to include everyone when he talks about the weak and the strong. He's not, he's not talking about two very specific groups within the larger context. He's really talking to the whole church. 
Second thing we have to understand about the weak and the strong is that that idea of a weak faith and strong faith is not what we would expect it to be. When we hear weak and strong, we might, um, we might assume that Paul is talking about correct and incorrect. And that is not what he's doing. Paul is not saying that one group of believers is correct and the other group is incorrect and one of them is, has got it right and the other one has got it wrong. This is not what Paul is doing. Likewise, based on what Paul says in the text about days that are celebrated and food that is eaten, we might assume that strong means permissive or a wider faith and that weak means restrictive or a narrower faith. And that's not what Paul is saying either. It just, it just happens to land that way in this passage. So what is Paul saying when he uses the language of weak and strong? Well, he's using um, some idioms that would be very highly understood and in very common usage, especially in Rome. This idea that there is weak and strong is a very Roman idea, and it has mostly to do with character. And Roman people, Roman citizens, um, are, are taught from a young age and live this out in their lives that they need and should have and want to have a strong character. In other words, to be good Roman citizens. That is what it means to have strong character, to, to, in, to embody the Roman ethic in whatever form, in whatever life situation it happens. By contrast, anybody who is not a good Roman citizen, which is everybody who's not Roman, is seen by the Romans as weak in some way, which is to say inferior politically, socially, um, religiously, uh, and so there are writings in and around the time that Paul's writing by Roman thinkers, Roman philosophers, who refer to people of other religions as weak because they do strange things that the Romans don't do. And so essentially strong is Roman and weak is not Roman. Or we might say today that strong is those who are in the social majority, who have the dominant place socially. And weak is those in the social minority who have the, who have the um, inferior place socially. When Paul talks about those who are strong and those who are weak, he is not giving us categories of right and wrong. He is talking about status. He's talking about power dynamics. He's talking about those who have privilege and influence versus those who are on the margins of society. And so we need to get that straight in our heads. I, I also think it's interesting, by the way, that, that those who are in the majority, those who are the dominant force in culture, always think that they are strong, always think that they are right, and also are almost always complaining about being under siege or oppressed in some way. Uh, it's just it's the way it goes. Um, but, but Paul says that there is in this church in Rome those who believe themselves to be strong, correct in some way, that they hold the majority opinion, and that they look at others within their church and they say, you are weak in some way, you are not like us, you are on the margins of our community. This may be a, a kind of Greek-Jewish divide. There's some 
um, thought around this, and there's some evidence in the text that this may be what it's talking about. After all, the Jews are, are very particular, and Jewish Christians would be very particular about keeping kosher. They would have certain things that they do not eat, although they are not restricted just to vegetables, of course. Again, Paul's being, uh, uh, using hyperbole. Uh, and so it may be, likewise with days, there are certain days that the Jewish Christians would recognize the Sabbath day, um, whereas the Romans would not. And so there, there are, is some speculation that he's talking about these two groups in the church. And that would make sense for the Gentiles, the Roman people, uh, who probably outnumber the Jews in the church and who are definitely dominant culturally to hold the strong position. Well, those Jewish Christians who probably are outnumbered and who do not hold the strong position socially are seen as weak. So this is what we mean when we talk about strong and weak. We're talking about who has a position of majority or dominance in culture. Uh, the other thing we need to know about weak and strong is that that position can change very fast. Just because you hold a particular thought about something uh, does not mean that you are always in the strong faith or weak faith camp. Uh, let me give you an example from my own life. As I was growing up and as I was raised, um, one of the things that I was taught in regards to Christian life, and one of the things, honestly, that I still hold to revolves around alcohol. I don't drink at all. Um, and that is something that is a combination of partly how I was raised, and that is a combination of personal choice. I have worked through all of the theology of that and all that good stuff, and we don't have to get into it now. We never have to get into it. It's fine. All I'm saying is that's the choice that, that I've made. That is something that I do. 30 years ago, uh, when I turned 18, 29 years ago, when I turned 18, uh, I opted not to drink. And in that day and that time and the place that I was in the context that I lived in and the church I was a part of, that put me in the strong faith camp. That was the majority opinion of Christians who I knew, who were like me, and who walked in the same circles that I did. 30 years later, that's not true. By virtue of the changing world that we live in, changing social norms, changing mores, uh, changing context of where I now live, and the changing context of where I now worship, I find myself in the weak faith camp. I am in the minority opinion. And that's fine. We can hold the same opinion and find ourselves throughout life fluidly moving between a strong and weak spot. And that's okay. And as I change from strong to weak or from weak to strong, I also have to know that I don't get to impose my will on anybody else. And when Paul talks about weak and strong, this is really at the core of what he's talking about. Paul speaks to both groups of people. Whether you perceive yourself to be strong, and let's face it, most of us would put ourselves in that category, or whether you happen to fall in the weak category in some way, Paul speaks to both of us and calls both camps to unity. Neither camp gets to force each other to do something or hold each other back from something. So what does that look like? How do we effectively do that? Well, here are five principles from our text today that I think are worth exploring in our lives. Uh, the first is this. Paul says, welcome one another. 
welcome one another. The word welcome does not just mean greet. It doesn't just mean say hello to. Uh, In this context, it means take part with, assist them, come alongside of them, work together with them. The word welcome implies partnership. The word welcome implies togetherness. The word welcome implies that we're on the same path, that we're doing the same work, that we have the same goal. And so Paul says, if you are different from somebody else, if you hold a different position, you still have to welcome them. You still have to be in community, in communion, in partnership with other people. We have to welcome each other to fellowship. We have to welcome each other to the table. We have to welcome each other as equals. If we're going to disagree and live in unity, we have to welcome each other, and our welcome has to be genuine. Notice what Paul says in in that first verse. He says, welcome he whose faith is weak, or welcome one another without disagreeing on opinions. There's the temptation to say, ah, yes, I will welcome you into my community and change you. I will welcome you into my community and then I will convince you. I will welcome you into my community and I will argue with you until you are either like me or leave. Honestly, this happens, right? And Paul says it shouldn't. We're to welcome each other without the disagreeing of opinion, not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions, forcing each other to hold opinions. We welcome each other because we recognize that God has welcomed each other. Paul actually says that in our text, that God has welcomed. Paul says that both parties are in the faith. He says that the strong are in the faith. He also says that the weak are in the faith. He doesn't say they have a weak faith, but he does say that those who are in the weak position are in the faith. So when we welcome each other, we recognize each other as genuine followers of Jesus, genuine Christians, genuinely beloved by God. We recognize that there is a seat at the table for whoever is not like us, that they, whoever they happen to be, are part of God's household. That's the language Paul uses, that they're part of his household. He calls them slaves. There's a perfectly good word for slave in the Bible. It gets translated as servant most of the time. The word that gets translated as slave in Romans uh, chapter 14 is not slave, ironically enough, but it is member of the household. It's anybody who lives in the house. Anybody who lives in the house, servants, slaves, children, wives, brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, whatever. Paul says that everybody in the house belongs to the Lord. And so God has welcomed them and we must welcome them as well. God is going to make them stand, Paul says. God is going to do that. We don't get to count anybody out whom God has said is in. And so we welcome one another. Second, we don't despise or judge one another. We don't despise or judge one another. And here he speaks to each group. He says to one group, don't despise, and to the other, don't judge. The strong, those in the position of minority, are despising the weak. That is, they're looking down on them and saying that you are inferior, you're nobody, you're unimportant. And man, if you have a position of power in our society, in our country, that happens. Uh, Whoever has got control of Congress at any given time, the other side are just, well, we don't need them. They're, get rid of them, they're inferior. 
Same thing happens in our world. Same thing happens in our church. Whoever's got the dominant position thinks they don't need anybody else because we're in charge and we've got it handled. Paul says it can't be like that. If you hold the strong position, you cannot despise, you cannot look down on, you cannot make second-class citizens out of others. Meanwhile, to the weak, he says, you cannot judge the strong because those in the weak position happen to see themselves very often as we, honestly, we have the true faith. We're the real whatever. We're the, we're the steadfast remnant. And all you people out there who hold the majority opinion, you've, you've gone off the deep end. And so there is a judgment that's coming from those in the weak position to the strong position. They might say, you have a lazy faith. And those who are in the weak position who are judging others, they are essentially playing God. They are getting to say, ah, we get to judge. And that's not true. We don't get to judge. If we hold the weak position, if we find ourselves in, in the minority, we can't play God. We can't judge others. And listen, this, this is countercultural. It is so easy in our culture to despise and to judge. It's so easy to do this. And Paul is calling the Christians in, in his day to a countercultural way of living and still calling us to a countercultural way of living. For a group of people to disagree and stay together is countercultural. For a group of people to disagree and love each other is countercultural. For a group of people to disagree and work together in harmony is countercultural. For a group of people to disagree and build each other up instead of beat each other down is countercultural. We need that kind of countercultural faith. We need a, a faith that does not despise and does not judge. I got to move on. Uh, third thing, third principle. We need to allow for individual conviction. We need to allow for individual conviction. Listen, we don't have to all conform to what each other believes. There are some things that I believe that I am right about, undoubtedly. There are some things that I believe that I am wrong about, assuredly. The problem is I don't know which one's which, and neither do you. And so why in the world would we force each other to conform to what we believe when there's some things that we believe that we're just flat out wrong about and we don't know what they are? We need to allow for individuals to hold their own conviction. We cannot force others to conform. In fact, Paul will go on in the second half of the chapter, and we don't have time to get into it, but he will go on in the second half of the chapter, part of which Katie read last week, that says that if you force your convictions on someone else, you're sinning. And if you begin to live counter to your convictions because someone else has told you to, you're sinning. Paul calls us to live according to our own convictions, to be convinced before the Lord. Let all be fully convinced, he says. We don't have to conform to each other. We do have to conform to the pattern of Christ. We have to, do, have to conform to the mind of Christ. But we each do that in different ways and we do that at different speeds and we understand what that is differently and we're in different places along the journey. And so we cannot force each other to go faster or slower or be more like me. We must allow for individual conviction and at the same time, we must affirm 
each other's devotion. We must affirm each other's devotion as well. Paul says that, that each group of people are behaving to the Lord. Did, did you catch that? Those who, those who hold some days special are doing so to the Lord. Those who are eating everything are doing it to the Lord. Those who are abstaining from certain things are doing it to the Lord. Paul recognizes that what's happening in the church in Rome is not happening because of a lack of faith. That's not the problem at all. And so Paul affirms, you who are in this church, you are in the faith. I can see it. You're behaving the way you're behaving because you believe that this is loving Jesus. I affirm that in you. You are doing this to the Lord. And so we have to allow that each other have sincere faith. And we have to give thanks for one another's faith. And we have to find points of common devotion between each other to our God together. Is Jesus Lord of all? Paul seems to indicate he is. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that he is Lord of both the living and he is Lord of the dead. And if Jesus is the Lord of the living and he's the Lord of the dead, then certainly he can be the Lord of those who disagree. And so we have to both allow for individual conviction and we have to affirm each other's devotion. Finally, um, we have to recognize that we are all accountable to God. Now, because you and I have chosen to live in community, there is some accountability that we bear to each other. We have invited that in some ways at some level. And maybe inside of our community, there are people that you are more accountable to. You, you have a close relationship. You may have even said to somebody, I want you to hold me accountable to whatever it is, to doing this thing or not doing that thing or growing in some way. But ultimately, our accountability is to God. Paul again asked the question, why will you despise and why will you judge? Why will you despise and why will you judge? No one is accountable ultimately to me. You don't have to answer to me at the end of your life. I don't have to answer to you at the end of, our, of my life. But I am accountable to God. And so are you. We are each accountable to God for for what we believe and how we act on that belief, but we are also accountable to God for the way that we treat one another. And so I am accountable to God if I, if I force people to be like me, to believe like me, to behave like me, if I, if I force people to live counter to their own individual convictions, I must stand before God and answer for that. We all will, Paul says, so then each one of us, he concludes in verse 12, will be held accountable. Welcome one another. Do not despise or judge one another. Allow one another individual conviction. Affirm each other's devotion and recognize that we are all accountable to God. This is a great plan and terrible to try to work out in real life. It's so hard, right? It, it's easy to say these things. It's so hard to actually do them. But it's so worthwhile. And I wish I had a, a magic formula. I wish I had magic words that would like 
just let us go out from here and do all these five things. And I just don't. The, the only way to do it is to do it. The only way to do it is to practice it and fail and try it again and get better over time. And so I just want to encourage us today as a community, as a community who hold a diversity of opinion on a diverse number of things, as a community who live in a diverse world where there are other Christians who believe even differently than we do, and where there are people of other faiths who believe differently from us as well, in a pluralistic society that we live in here in the United States where you don't have to believe exactly the same thing in order to have equal rights. Let's try to practice again and again and again and again. We'll get it wrong, and we'll just keep trying again to give each other grace and to live in the tension of disagreement while still holding unity. We live in a time and a place where unity is often just absolutely thrown away over any disagreement whatsoever. The old joke is that churches split over the color of carpet. There's a reason that joke exists. We will throw away unity at the drop of a hat because there's somebody else out there that we can find unity with. Let's knock that off. Let's say it's worthwhile to have unity with people we disagree with. Let's say it's worthwhile to work hard for that and to put that into practice. Man, I wish that I had learned that earlier in my life. There are so many people that I have thrown away unity with. I regret deeply. For no other reason than that we, we understood a verse of the Bible differently, or we understood something in our culture differently, we saw the world differently, and for that we said, we no longer are part of each other's lives. I regret that. I regret that deeply. I'm done with that. So I encourage us. Let's work for unity in these ways. The church is not to be a divided church. The church is to be united around Jesus Christ. And in other matters, we may have liberty of opinion. We may work through those things. But we may not judge and we may not despise. And if we would live like that, if we would live in our world like that, in a world where everybody is either left or right or center or whatever, if we as the church were to say there is another option, there is the kingdom way, there is a way that lives in the tension and holds on to unity even in disagreement, if we were to say that there is a way to embrace those who are different from us, who think different from us, who live different from us, but who love the same Lord we do, if there was a way to live in unity, especially when we disagree, don't you think that that was some, would be something that would attract the attention of the world around us? To see a group of people who are different and who hold different positions, but they love each other and they refuse to let each other go. And if the world could see that in us, maybe, maybe, they would say, I want a taste of that. And they would come and, and they might ask, is there a seat at the table for me too? And we would have to say, of course there is. Because God's made a seat at the table for each one of us. 
Speaking of the table, we come to this uh, time in our service every week. Uh, We come to the table, which is in the center of our room because it is at the center of our lives. We come to the table and we say there is a seat at this table for every person. For anyone who is willing to come, Jesus says, come and remember what I have done. Come and remember my body. Come and remember my blood. Come and remember salvation and forgiveness. Come and find hope and mercy and peace and love and freedom. And so we come to the table. We who come with a diversity of backgrounds, we who come with a diversity of understanding, we who come with a diversity of opinion, we who come with a diversity of theology, we all come to the table. And here at the table, we find that we are very much the same. We are each human beings created in the image of God and loved by our creator with an everlasting, redeeming love shown in the person of Jesus poured out on the cross. In just a minute, we'll invite you to come